Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer in residence here at the college, and you can read what I write at alatea.org or excorde.org. Today, I want to talk about the Mass, which Vatican II calls the source and summit of Christian holiness. That means it's the source of grace and the high summit of our beautiful union with God. It also means that it's a summit that can be really hard to reach. A summit is basically a climb up a mountain. And some of us never make it to the top of the mountain, the summit of Christian grace, which is the mass, because maybe we don't like mass that much, or maybe the mass we go to isn't all that likable. So today I want to share some ideas for how to make the climb a little easier, how to get up the summit of mass. And it starts by recognizing what exactly mass is. So first of all, don't think of it as a community meal. People who have been in the church for a while have heard this idea that it's a community meal. Calling the mass a community meal actually makes it a lot less alluring for me anyway. It makes it a lot less meaningful. Instead, we should think about it as being present at the passion of Christ. So the catechism says that mass represents represents, makes present, the sacrifice of the cross. So first I'll go through some obstacles that we face out of seeing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross at mass. And then I'll go through the mass itself, kind of explaining how to approach each part. So I want to start by sharing three obstacles that we have to entering into the mass. Routine, sentimentality, and our focus on other human beings. I'll take them in order. First is routine. We tend to bracket anything that we do, which is basically the same day after day. Like our drive to work, it's the same day after day. Uh, a friend of mine said that he used to drive home the same route out in Nebraska. He goes straight with no turns for miles and miles, then turn and then go for miles and miles, then turn again and then be home. Well, one night he set out to go home on his drive and the next moment he was waking up in his driveway. So he doesn't know what exact, what state exactly he was in, some kind of sleep or trance or sleep-like trance. But he made the whole drive somehow, making his few turns without even realizing what he was doing. Well, that's exactly what happens to a lot of us at Mass you can suddenly be startled that, oh, it's communion now, right? Because you've let your mind wander. In some cases, you maybe have even encouraged your mind to wander. You have some things to think about that mass presents a great time to sit quietly and think about these things. So it can pass by without us knowing it. And then there we are when it's all over, wondering what happened. But if mass is supposed to be a source of life and spiritual renewal for us, but can only do that job if we are awake during it. If we pass through mass in a trance-like state before too long, we'll decide, I don't really need to go to mass at all. So we have to snap out of the routine of mass. You'll notice you have to snap out of the routine of talking to your kids without listening to them, talking to your spouse without listening to him or her, 
talking to your boss without listening. So you need to apply the same intentionality to listen to mass. And we'll talk about that. So a second obstacle in mass is sentimentality. Human nature naturally looks for warm feelings and easy pleasures. If you're like me, you um, probably tune into pop music more often than classical music in your car. A friend of mine once convinced me that I sh- if I could, I should listen to classical music. He said it's better for- than pop music. It's better for your brain. It's better for your elevating your spirit. He said pop music is like McDonald's and classical music is like a good steak, right? So I tried really hard. I even took a course on classical music to try to understand it a little bit better. And I find myself still tuning into pop music instead of classical music. The problem is I just can't sustain the gravitas or the concentration or the understanding needed to listen to classical music. And that's probably okay because that doesn't have anything to do with my eternal soul. However, mass offers an experience of God, which is necessarily a little bit more sober, a little bit more somber, a little bit more classical than we are accustomed to. And if we try to turn the mass into pop music and make it fun and superficial, it tends to lose its meaning fast. So we're going to try to talk about ways that we can elevate our minds to accept the sober, somber reality, the subtle reality of what mass really is, the classical reality, if you will. So a third obstacle is focusing on the ministers. That could be the priest, that could be the lector. The problem is we're human beings and we're hardwired to notice other human beings. You see this from a very small age. If you hold a picture of a face in front of a baby, the baby will look at the face. If you hold a picture of a truck in front of the baby, the baby will look away. We naturally noticed human beings around us. So we naturally notice all the human beings around us instead of focusing on the mass. The Catholic Church understands this problem, and so it has equipped the Mass with all kinds of imagery and furniture to help us out. You have candles, you have sacred vessels, you have vestments, you have the altar, the crucifix. They're all there to speak in a sort of an inarticulate symbol language about Christ. Now, the very nature of symbols is that once you explain them, they lose a little bit of their power. So I could sum up how the candle stands for Christ and what the altar stands for. And I think that's helpful to a degree, but it's even more helpful is to just look at those things during mass and try to understand what they mean in their own language. So let me go through the parts of the mass and see if we can address these three obstacles as we look at each one. The first thing we do is we gather. We gather in the church together. I always like to think of it in terms of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper saying, I have eagerly desired to share this Passover with you. This is what Jesus says to us as we gather. Now, I have to say, as a child of the 1970s, I was trained by catechists who really, really liked this whole thing about we gather, right? So consequently, I hate this (laughs) phrase, we gather. Our religion book was called We Gather, it was shiny and silver and it had the a weird font that said we gather on the front of it there were felt banners hanging in my church that said we gather Uh, so i began to associate all the irritation i felt as a child 
with religious education and with mass, I kind of associate them with this phrase, we gather. So it's really, really hard for me to talk in a positive way about gathering, about the phrase we gather at mass. But the more I look into it as I get older and try to understand what the mass is, the more I realize that the gathering of us at mass is actually a big deal. The catechism explains who we gather with. We gather, first of all, with Christ, the principal agent of our Eucharistic assembly. We gather with the church, not only the members who are still on earth, but those who are in glory in heaven. Blessed John Paul II said that Mary should be our support and guide in approaching the Mass, so we gather with her. He said, Mary is present with the church and as the mother of the church at each of our celebrations of the Eucharist. So some tips when we gather for Mass. First of all, remember people like John Paul II who gathered for Mass under very difficult circumstances. I remember hearing the story about how he was serving at altar when one of the conquerors of his native Poland, whether it's the Nazis or USSR, I don't recall, uh, was coming into town with guns blazing, and he still made it over the bridge to Mass. To this day, people in Coptic churches in Northern Africa show a symbol of the cross that they have tattooed on their wrists as they gather for Mass because they know that if somebody doesn't have that cross, they need to keep them out because they could try to hurt everybody in the church. There's times in the deep history of the church where people gathered in basements because it was illegal to say Mass. And there are times at present in places where people have a hard time gathering for Mass. So when we gather for Mass, we should remember all of them. And one helpful practice is to offer your Mass for a particular person. I know people who literally write on a card who they're offering their mass for and then send it to that person or send them an email saying, I'm offering my mass for you today. That helps you avoid sentimentality and making it routine. Also, you could say a little prayer. Remember what Jesus said about eagerly wanting to desire this, uh, to share this Passover with you. Tell him you're eager to share it with him as well. Say a prayer of your own, like, Lord Jesus, we are here gathering to witness a miracle. We're joined by your angels and your saints and the Blessed Mother. Through her intercession and at her side, help me enter this Mass more deeply. To avoid focusing on the people involved at Mass, train yourself to look forward. Look at the crucifix, look at the altar, look at the statue of Mary, look at the statue of the angels or saints to remind you that they're all here with you. Next comes the Liturgy of the Word. You see in that story of Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the mass taking shape, beginning with this liturgy of the word. Jesus described how the scriptures applied to him. And then later, as we'll see, uh, he broke bread with them. Now, the liturgy of the word that you hear at mass, the scripture readings, can have a very powerful effect on you if you pay attention and focus. There's all sorts of stories in the history of the church and how this has happened. St. Anthony of the Desert, for instance, is the father of monasticism. St. Benedict followed him. He was one of the first monastics. St. Anthony first heard his call to found monasticism at Mass. It was six months after his parents died, and he was thinking about the rewards they must be enjoying in heaven, and he walked into Mass just as the gospel was being read. So he was late, I guess. 
But the words he heard were, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all you have and give the money to the poor. Then you will have riches in heaven. Then come follow me. The words, for whatever reason, hit him like a ton of bricks. And he immediately decided that that's exactly what he had to do. And if you've never met anybody who's founded a religious order because of something they said at mass, you've probably met people who come out of mass thinking, oh my gosh, that reading was exactly what I needed to hear or that homily was for me. Well, that's not an accident. In God's providence, we line up with the right graces at the right times to say the right things to the circumstances in our life. So very literally, when you listen to the word of God at mass, you're hearing God's words meant for you today. Not in some random way, but specifically for you today. So listen carefully. That can be hard to do, to listen carefully to ancient texts that were written in a totally different context. Uh, And sometimes it's a little bit tricky to understand what exactly you're supposed to get out of a particular reading. So I have a little cheat sheet here that I'll share with you, what I do anyway. When I listen to the Old Testament, I try to crack the code. So the reader's up there struggling through the readings at times with the crazy names and strange places. But the readings almost always refer to Jesus Christ. And what you can do is treat it like a game where you're finding the clues in the reading that are referring to Jesus Christ. Once you find them, you'll realize that some pretty astounding things are being said about Jesus Christ. So, for instance, on the 33rd Sunday of Ordinary Time, which is coming up, the first reading is from Daniel. And it says, at that time there shall arise Michael the great prince, guardian of your people. So immediately you're talking about a great prince arising and you can think, well, I wonder if that has to do with Jesus Christ. And listen more to see in context whether it's a great prince that's a good guy, so like Christ, or a great prince that's a bad guy, so not like Christ, but Christ's enemy He goes on to say, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some shall live forever. Others shall be an everlasting horror and disgrace. Well, here he's clearly explaining that at some future time, Jesus Christ is going to call the living to him to live in glory. And that those who are not called to live in glory are going to live in eternal hellfire. So immediately you realize that this reading is about Jesus Christ and what he does for us. My tip for the psalm is to actually pray the psalm, right? This is something that I never did for most of my life. For whatever reason, starting in my childhood, I just thought of it as a recitation exercise. The person says things and you respond with the line and it's all about saying your part at the right time. I never actually thought of it as me praying to God. So what I started to do, and Father Mike Schmitz in his uh, Bible New Year podcast is good about when he reads the psalm, he says, we're praying the psalm, not just reading the psalm. But what I've started to do is I'll look directly at the crucifix and say the words to Jesus Christ or at the tabernacle and say the words to the real presence of Jesus Christ there. So the 33rd Sunday in ordinary time, you'll be saying over and over again, you are my inheritance, O Lord. You are my inheritance, O Lord. And it's good to kind of let those words 
sink in and decide, well, when exactly am I praying for? What am I asking Jesus Christ for? It's a mysterious phrase, you are my inheritance, O Lord. So it's some it's something you can sit with and try to understand and make your own. So that's my advice for the psalm. Pray it, don't say it. How about the epistle? Usually it's a uh, reading from St. Paul, one of his letters. At the end of year B here, we've gotten a lot of readings from Hebrews, which doesn't really read like a letter. It reads more like a sermon. Uh, at any rate, people aren't 100% sure what the original form of it was. But the idea is to find the soundbite in it. This is my um, this is my shortcut. I try to find the soundbite. Often St. Paul writes in these long sentences that are hard to follow and hard to parse together. But often he has a little soundbite in there that is a great takeaway from the reading. In the reading from Hebrews for the 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time, year B, Paul says, Every priest stands daily at his ministry, offering frequently those same sacrifices that can never take away sins. So he's talking about Old Testament uh, priests there. But this one offered one sacrifice for sins and took his seat forever at the right hand of God. Now he awaits until his enemies are made his footstool. So there's a nice little soundbite. You can imagine Jesus Christ doing his one sacrifice for sins and then sitting enthroned at the right hand of God, uh, and one day his enemies will be his footstool. So with the epistle, find the soundbite. Now the gospel is the best part. So you have to listen to the gospel carefully. And I, what I try to do is I try to pick out the verbs. Why the verbs? Because in the gospel, you see how Jesus Christ, so God himself as man, acts and reacts. What is he doing? How is he reaching out? What is he like? What does he react to other people like? This is all great information for your own life. And also great information about your life with Jesus Christ. So for instance, he was traveling, you'll see in a gospel, and you can realize, oh my gosh, Jesus Christ, the son of God is traveling on earth. He's doing the same thing today, trying to find people, trying to reach out to people. The hound of heaven, he's been called, looking for people. 10 lepers went to meet him. So he didn't go find them. He didn't figure out where the lepers lived. He made himself available in proximity to them. Then they had to come out and stop him on the way. So that tells me something new. Jesus Christ is traveling to meet me, but I've got to take the initiative to come out and stop him on the way. So when Jesus sees me, when I come out to try to make myself available, he'll stop and he'll speak to me. So I need to be looking for that in my life. That's a gospel I picked from a previous Sunday. This 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time gospel that's coming up. It's a little bit harder, but the same principle still applies. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, In those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. So he's talking about these days of the tribulation. What exactly is that? Well, he's basically talking about what the world will be like without him. He's describing Christlessness. And the world is this dark and haunted place without Jesus Christ, where we are without the sun and without even the moon. And then it says, the son of man, 
they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. So Jesus Christ will enter into this dark world, and we can think about the dark world we live in today, because it applies for sure. Jesus Christ will come into our world and send his angels and his elect and gather us together. So there's great hope, right, in this gospel. And you can see that in the verbs. During the Liturgy of the Word, apart from cracking the code of the Old Testament, praying the psalm, looking for the soundbite in the epistle, and listening to the verbs in the gospel, you still need to fight those three obstacles. To fight routine, when you find your mind wandering during the Liturgy of the Word, which I don't know about you, but happens occasionally with me, the first lifeline you have are the words being said. These beautiful words are being spoken out on a microphone, on speakers. And if your mind starts to wander, just listen to the words and it'll pull you back in. To stop focusing on the people around you, well, one thing to do is surrender to the fact that you're focusing on the people around you. If you're focusing on the weaknesses of the people around you, remember that St. Augustine said, we tend to notice weaknesses in others that we share. So when you see somebody who's mind wandering at mass or somebody looking the wrong direction or whatever you're noticing at mass, realize, okay, God, thank you for showing me this because this is probably something that I share. Another thing you can remind yourself of is God, Christ's radical love, handing himself over to human beings. He didn't hand himself over to a bunch of perfect saints. He handed himself over in his sacrifice on the cross and also in his giving of himself in the Eucharist to exactly these people who are in the room with you, including yourself. The next part of the Mass is the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And the verse I like to associate with this one is, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is what Jesus Christ said on the cross, but here when we enter the Liturgy of the Eucharist, we're entering into a representation of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So we can share that sentiment. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Pope Benedict XVI called the Eucharist a gift of love that is truly worth more than all the rest of life. St. John Paul II said the right attitude toward the Eucharistic prayer is amazement. We should be amazed at the liturgy because here you're entering the cosmic dimension of the Mass. The liturgy reminds you that you're praying with all the angels and the saints, joining their prayer, holy, holy, holy. As they say that in heaven, we're saying it on earth, all in one great Eucharistic prayer. You're also entering the passion. So you're not entering the stations of the cross where you're just thinking about how awesome the passion was. You're not entering the sorrowful mysteries where you're meditating on the different aspects of the passion. You're actually watching the real passion. The catechism says the victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. This divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. So you are literally watching the passion. Fulton Sheen said, it's like you're looking through a window that's a portal in time and you looking at the altar, you're looking through the altar at what happened 2000 years ago on the cross.
you also are suddenly going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ in a new way, the presence of God himself. So the Bible shows how powerfully being in God's presence should affect you. Moses was in awe, afraid to be on holy ground. He hid in the cleft of a rock rather than be directly in the presence of God. The Old Testament says, no man sees my face and lives. Nobody stands in the presence of God and is unaffected, unharmed. St. Peter was so overwhelmed by Jesus Christ's presence in his boat that he said, go away from me for I am a sinful man. The centurion said, I am not worthy to have you under my roof. Simeon in the presentation said, after seeing Jesus Christ once, he could die in peace. So this is what's happening to you. You're approaching this awe-inspiring moment where Jesus Christ himself is coming to be present with you on the altar in front of you. So you need to remind yourself, you need to wake up and realize what's going on. A couple tips. First, offer yourself on the patent with the hosts. So liturgy of the Eucharist, you'll notice, begins with the preparation of the altar. The altar servers will bring up the patent, which is the metal plate, and the chalice, which is the metal cup. And there'll be an altar cloth that the priest will take off and spread. Anything that's on top of that altar cloth during the consecration will be consecrated. What happens at the consecration and mass? Well, the gifts of ordinary bread and ordinary wine are transubstantiated. They become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what's supposed to happen to us as Christians. We're supposed to be elevated to participate in God's very Trinitarian life, in the participate in the divine life of God himself. So it's not inappropriate for you to say, as the patent is being offered to God, Lord, I lay myself on the patent and offer myself to be given to you as well, to be transformed, just like you'll transform these gifts. During the consecration to overcome the superficiality that so naturally comes to us, remind yourself what Fulton Sheen said and see this as a window to the past. Imagine that you're right there at the cross with Mary, with St. John, with Mary Magdalene, and that you're watching this unfold in front of you. Third, to stop thinking about the priest or noticing the people around you, look directly at the chalice, directly at the patent, and especially during the consecration when the priest raises the host, a traditional prayer to pray silently to yourself is, my Lord and my God. And when he raises the chalice, consecrating the wine to become his blood, pray, my Jesus, mercy, silently to yourself. It's a great habit to get into. It refocuses your mind. I don't even think about it, and I do that every time now. If your mind starts to wander during the Eucharistic prayer, you're in the perfect place to pull it back. You have the giant crucifix above the altar that you can look at. It's there for a reason. It's a required decoration in every church. And it's there so that you can look at Jesus Christ on the cross and remind yourself, this is what is happening in front of me now. There's the statue of the Blessed Mother in most churches, at least, often St. Joseph also. You can look at the statue and remind yourself, I'm here at the foot of the Christ with her. And of course, there's a tabernacle where after the hosts are consecrated, the hosts are kept. 
so that the real presence of Jesus Christ is always there in the church. And if you're blessed enough to have the tabernacle right in the center of the church where you can see it, first of all, thank God for that. And second of all, use it, look at it, pray to Jesus Christ saying, thank you for allowing me to be here with you. Next comes communion. And the verse I like to think of here is let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink. That's what Jesus Christ blurted out in the temple. Let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink. Communion is a huge, huge deal, and we often forget exactly what it does. The principal fruit of Holy Communion is intimate union with Jesus Christ. This union has been compared to the marital union. This is where you and Jesus Christ become one. And the Catechism says it does a number of things for you. First of all, it preserves, increases, and renews the life of grace received at baptism. So you became a new creature at baptism. And at communion, that's all re-upped, right? You're, it's all renewed in you. The Eucharist separates you from sin. So whatever sin you have a problem with, communion is there to separate you from it, to get you out of that bad habit, to get you into a new life. It strengthens your charity. If you have a hard time doing things for others, the Eucharist is there to correct that in you. It preserves you from future mortal sins so that whatever hard, difficult sins in your life are there, the Eucharist is your ticket out of them if you give yourself to the Eucharist. It commits us to the poor. As Mother Teresa said, every holy hour with the Eucharist needs to be followed by a holy hour with the poor. So a lot is going on and a lot is available to you when you're receiving communion. A couple of things I do to avoid routine and superficiality in my own life when I receive communion. I say these prayers that I picked up in England, actually, when I was visiting, they had these little Catholic Truth Society pamphlets, and they had these prayers to say in the communion line. One was, Mary, lead me to the altar of love. So now I find myself saying that often. Mary, lead me to the altar of love. And Lord Jesus, truly present in the sacrament, I bow before you, I adore you. So remind yourself as you're in line, what you're there for and what you're about to do. To avoid sentimentality, the church gives you the words that you need. Right before communion, we all pray, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. That's a prayer you can repeat in the communion line. And one thing I like to imagine is the story of the woman with the hemorrhage. If you remember this story, we got it not too long ago at Mass. There's a woman who had a, had a hemorrhage for 12 years and gone to many doctors and spent all she had, and, and she had not gotten any better, but had only grown worse. This is kind of the state we're all in. We've all looked for peace. We've looked for solutions to our life's problems. We've spent a lot of time and energy on all kinds of solutions that haven't made us any better, but only made us worse. So what did she do? She saw this crowd of people crowding around Jesus Christ. She pushed through them and she just barely touched the hem of his garment and immediately she was made all better. Well, this is exactly what you're experiencing in the communion line. You see all of these people who are all crowding around Jesus Christ. Some of them with significant problems, some of them look bored, some of them look like they're into it, some of them look like they're not. But you know from your point of view that you need to reach Jesus Christ to find the answer to your problems. So push forward, focusing on him, and you don't get to touch just the hem of his garment. You get to receive him, body, blood, soul, and divinity, into your very body. 
So take advantage of it. Come with the heart of the woman with the hemorrhage. Push forward through the crowd and touch your Savior. So the last part of the Mass is the dismissal. And this is, believe it or not, the most important part of the Mass. Let me explain what I mean. Maybe that's overstating it. Maybe that's stating it the wrong way. But it's super, super important. I started out by telling that story about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Well, what happens at the beginning of that story is they hear him and describe the scriptures to them and their hearts burn within them. And then what happens at the end? They sit down, they break bread with him, and suddenly he disappears. He literally blinks away like he's no longer there. And all they're left with is the bread that he broke. This is Jesus Christ building a neon sign that says, this is how I'm with you now. Not in my person, that's disappearing. What I'm leaving you with is the Eucharistic bread, my body, blood, soul, and divinity in the bread. So what happened at communion? You stood in a line and you came up to the priest and he put Jesus Christ himself into your body or onto your hand and you received our Lord, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And then at the end, the priest says, go forth, the mass is ended, or go and announce the gospel of the Lord, or go in peace, glorifying the Lord in your life, right? What are you supposed to do? Well, clearly, Jesus Christ is no longer with us as a man with legs and arms and a beard who's walking around doing all the good that he did when he walked around in the world. Now he's just shown us he is an armless, legless lump of bread that has been placed in your body, right? This has been taught to you in the most powerful way imaginable that you are supposed to be the life of Jesus Christ in the world. You're being dismissed to give arms and legs to Jesus Christ who has decided to no longer be in a form where he has his own arms and legs. He only has yours. So this dismissal is the most important thing. Remember, the Eucharist is the source and summit of your life as a Christian. It's not the be-all, end-all of your life as a Christian. It's the beginning of your life as a Christian. And it's the place you return to again and again for renewal. So now is when it begins, when you walk outside the church and you need to be him to your family, to your neighbors, Without us, Jesus Christ looks like a piece of bread and he's sitting in a tabernacle. With us, Jesus Christ is entering into every situation we find ourselves in. At work, at a ball game, at a picnic, anywhere we go, Jesus Christ goes. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops and this is the Catholic Living Podcast produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.